Hello and welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where New Life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. I'm Eric, Discipleship Pastor at New Life Lutheran Church. Today on our podcast, we're going to hear the sermon from this weekend. We're finishing up the sermon series, Transformed Lives, where we explore the ways that Jesus interacted with and transformed those around him. The scripture today is from John chapter 4, verses 5 through 42. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well? And with his sons and his flocks drank from it. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but the one who drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I may never be thirsty, or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, What do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest will come? But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with them two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Thanks for listening today. You can catch our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, 
Spotify, Podbean, and Google Play Music. Thanks for listening. Let's get growing. We are continuing on in a sermon series called Transformed Lives. It's a teaching series that we've been in for a few weeks now. And it's kind of a part two from a teaching series that we did before then called Transformed Hearts. So we spent a few weeks talking about the different ways that we see Jesus interact with people in the Gospels, that he transformed their hearts, which is kind of their decision-making factory, the place that they uh, process emotions. We talked about it's not so much romantic heart but it's more like our gut, or even our mind. We could translate it as mind. It's a place that we make decisions, a place that we process emotions, that people's loves are actually changed. They're actually transformed by God. And then the last few weeks, we've been talking about how Jesus transforms the lives of people, not just their hearts, not just their emotions, not just their decision-making, but actually changes the situations, that, how they interact with the situations that they're in. Two weeks ago, we heard about Matthew, the tax collector. We heard Pastor Ben told us about how hated tax collectors were and how Jesus' invitation to follow him transformed Matthew. And then Matthew invited his friends to eat with Jesus, and Jesus ate with the sinners and the tax collectors. And then last week, we heard about the, the man with the unclean spirit. He was a Gentile, an unclean person who was filled with an unclean spirit. And we heard about how Jesus would go and he would interact with and he would transform even those who were the farthest from the social norm. The unclean of the unclean of the unclean could be transformed by Jesus. And we're going to continue on in this same sermon series and, and sim- with a similar thought. So I want you to have the last two weeks in your mind as we look at this text because this woman is kind of in a similar situation. She's an outcast of society, and we'll talk about how here in a little bit, but she's kind of an outcast. She's not really treated well. Um, She's not really accepted in her community. So I want you to have the last two sermons about the tax collectors and the sinners and the unclean man in the back of your mind as we look at this text. And as I like to do, I also want us to to take the plane up and look at this thing at 30,000 feet before we dive into this story, because we are in John's gospel now. Last week we were in Mark's, and Mark's gospel and John's gospel are vastly different in how they talk about Jesus, and because they're writing, uh, the Holy Spirit inspired them in two different ways. Mark's gospel is very fast-paced, but John's gospel is slow. It's a very, very slow pace. It's very artful. It's more like looking at a painting than it is reading a comic book. So John takes a lot of time with these stories, and as you may have known as you were standing for that, like, 300-verse section of Scripture, right? It's very long, and there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of meditation on the situations that are going on and some of those things. But John's Gospel is my favorite, and it's not even because it's the most poetic and artful, but there's a really interesting thing that happens in John's Gospel, and it happens at the beginning of John's Gospel, and it happens at the end of John's Gospel. And it's Jesus' first words and one of his last words and I love, the, I love it how John frames these two things, how the Holy Spirit inspired him to do this. So the very first thing that Jesus says in John's gospel, the story is that Jesus is walking along the road. We don't really know where he's going. We don't get those details. But he's walking along the road, and he passes by 
John the Baptist and a couple of John the Baptist's disciples. And John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus walks by and John the Baptist essentially says, You should be following him and not me. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so John's disciples leave John and they begin to follow Jesus. And the way that, that John tells the story in the gospel is that it just seems like Jesus is walking along and these disciples just are like falling kind of close. He realizes that they're behind him and he wheels around on them and then he asks them a question. And if you have a red letter Bible where Jesus' words are in red, um, this is the first thing that he says. It's the first red letter in the gospel of John. It's in the first chapter. He, he wheels around and he asks them, what do you want? And in the New Revised Standard Version, he asks, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? What do you want out of this? What do you desire? What are you longing for? And then at the very end of the gospel, after Jesus is resurrected, he goes and he visits his disciples and they're on the seashore and Peter falls at his feet and John asks him a, or Jesus asks him a similar question, but framed a little bit different. He asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Can you see how those two questions are kind of the same question? What do you want? What do you desire? Another way that I might ask this today is, what do you want out of life? What are you looking for in life? And the last question is similar. Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Do you want me? Do you desire me? Are you looking for me? You see how those are similar questions? So Jesus could have asked at the beginning when he asked those disciples, the question could have been posed as, what do you love? What are you searching after? What do you desire? You see, as the Holy Spirit inspired John, this question runs throughout the whole gospel. And it's never explicitly stated, it is actually in this, but it's in a different context, but it's never quite posed the same way. But the whole gospel explores this very question of, what do you want? Do you want Jesus? Do you want the kingdom? Or do you want something else? And Jesus interacts with a lot of different characters that are looking and searching and desiring all sorts of different things. And Jesus, in their, in their conversations, challenges them and then invites them to love and to want something different. And this story is exactly one of those stories. We hear about this Samaritan woman. And this Samaritan woman um, is kind of ostracized by her community and by the world in a few ways. So the first one is that she's a Samaritan. And the Samaritans were kind of a, uh, treated as a mixed blood race. They were kind of half Jewish and half other. They were part of the northern kingdom of Israel, and then when the Assyrians took over before Jesus, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom, and they began to intermarry, and they began to marry people from other countries, and pretty soon, this, this northern people, they were no longer truly Jewish. They were kind of Jewish, but they also weren't. And so the fully-blooded Jews, they did not like the Samaritans. They ostracized the Samaritans. They were treated as second-class citizens and even as heretics. The Samaritans still believed in God. They still claimed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their ancestors. They still believed in the scriptures, especially the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. 
They were still worshipers of Yahweh. They were still worshipers of God, but the Jews treated them as if they were second-class worshipers. Because not only were they mixed race, but they also didn't worship at the temple like the Jews thought they should. They worshiped on a mountain, and in the mountain they believed that Abraham took Isaac up to sacrifice him in Genesis. And they worshiped there. They didn't worship at the temple like they thought that they should. So this woman already had one strike against her. She was a Samaritan, a second-class citizen. The Jews did not like the Samaritans. They treated them poorly. The second thing against her was the fact that she was a woman. This is in a culture where women, women were not treated well. They were not allowed to hold property unless they were widowed. And, in fact, there are traditions that men and women should not ever talk in public. In fact, Jewish men should not even interact with their wives in public because it'd be a little racy, it'd be a little uncouth. So this woman had a second strike against her simply by being a woman. And then we heard that there's something else going on with this woman's life, that she's been married five times. And in that culture, divorce and remarriage was not a big thing. It wasn't a good thing, and it wasn't right. So this woman had, we assume, had five divorces and then been married five times, and now she's living with a man and sleeping with a man who isn't even her husband. So she's breaking the law. She's breaking the Torah by doing this. And we know that she's somehow ostracized by her community because she goes to get water at noon, where women in that time, they would mostly go get water in the morning for their Uh, chores for the day, and they would travel together. The women of the village would travel together for protection. But this woman went by herself, without any other women, in the middle of the day, probably to avoid the other women, because we all know how rumors can fly around, right? So she was either avoiding the women, and the thing with this uh, Samaritan woman, we don't know exactly what the situation was, but being married five times, there are kind of two possibilities. The first possibility is that she's a victim. Somehow she's uh, treated as a sexual slave, and then these men are just like divorcing her and selling her off to other men. So that's possible. So maybe she's a victim. And so she's going to the well um, in the middle of the day maybe to avoid the other women so that they won't know that she's a victim, right? Maybe people don't know that she's kind of being enslaved a little bit. Or she's a user, where she uses up men, then leaves them. She uses up men, then leaves them. So there's kind of two possibilities. We don't know which one it is. But either she is being used or she is a user. But both of those bring shame with them. And so she goes by herself. This woman was looking and desiring something. And as the great uh, theologian and country western star Johnny Lee would say it, she was looking for love in all the wrong places. She was looking for love and fulfillment in relationships, in men, when she knew she couldn't get it. This woman was thirsty. She was hungry for something. And Jesus identified this. She wanted fulfillment in her life. And so she was looking for love in all the wrong places. And so she has this interaction with Jesus. And Jesus doesn't quite ask her what she wants, but he essentially asks her what she wants, doesn't he? He asks her about this water, and he says, if you knew the water that I had, you'd be begging me for water. He asks her about worship, 
and they have a conversation about worship. He asks her about her husband. He's teasing out all of these things that she feels separated and she feels like she's ostracized from her community. And he's teasing out this question of what do you want and why do you want it? And then towards the end of their conversation, this is what he says to her. He says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. So what Jesus does is that he identifies that this woman is looking for love in all the wrong places, and then through their conversation, offers her a different desire. He offers her a different love and a different end to her life, the different vision of the good life, where it's not in relationships, but now it's in this true worship. And you might, we're going to highlight some of the ways that he addresses every single one of her problems by offering her this vision of the kingdom of God. He offers her that she can be a true worshiper, that it doesn't matter if she worships on the mountain or in the temple. It doesn't matter where she worships God because God should be worshiped in spirit and in truth. It's a non-physical reality as we worship God. So he offers her a solution to her religious, to being a religious minority. He says that doesn't matter anymore because the Father, God, he wants worshipers in spirit and in truth. And then he proclaims to her that God is spirit. God is a non-physical entity. God is not a Jew. And God is not a Samaritan. God is not a human. God is spirit. So it doesn't matter if you're Jewish. It doesn't matter if you're Samaritan. God can be your father. God is spirit. And then he offers her ordered and correct and healthy male relationships in two ways. One, he exclusively uh, calls God father in this statement. He offers her a good, positive male relationship that you can have a father. You've been used by men, or you've used men, but there is a father who will offer you positive relationship. And the second way he does this is that he offers her relationship with himself. She says, I know Messiah is coming, and he says, I am he. I am the Messiah, the one that you are speaking of. I know, he says, that you've had disordered relationships with men in the past. I know that they've used you, or I know that you've used them, but now you can have right relationship with me, and you can have right relationship with the Father. You see how he solves all of the things that are going on in her life with this statement? He offers her a new vision of the good life. He offers her a new place to direct her love. So now, instead of directing it toward relationships and toward disordered relationships, he's now offering a way and a place for her to direct her love and her affection and to look for fulfillment in something other than relationships. And that thing is the kingdom of God. He says, there's coming a time where God 
wants worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. There's a time that's coming, the kingdom that's coming, and he says, I am the king. So he offers her no longer to search for fulfillment in relationships, but now to find fulfillment in him, to find fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And then this is what happens to her. She, ran, she runs back to her village. And she says to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? So no, now, her love is rightly ordered. Now she is now finding fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And now she's being healed of the very things that were disenfranchising her before. She runs to a Samaritan village and says, come and see a Jew. Come and communicate with and spend time with a Jewish person, which really wasn't very accepted in our community. So she crosses a cultural boundary by inviting other Samaritans to come see this Jewish Messiah. She says, come and see. And then she tells her community, this man told me everything I have ever done. Now, this is a small town. And so you guys know how rumors spread and how everybody talks about everybody else's business. So you know for sure that the whole village probably knew about this woman, especially if she was as scandalous as being divorced and married five times, especially if she was a user or even being used. I'm guessing everybody in that village knew about her. I'm guessing that the stories were being shared about her. And now, Instead of going to the well by herself, now she goes into the community and she almost proudly proclaims her past. This man told me everything I had ever done. No longer was she ashamed and by herself going to the well, but now she's in the middle of the community and she's actually almost confessing her sins. You know that I've done this. I know that I've done this. This man told me everything I have ever done. No more hiding. No more going to the well by herself. This man told me everything I had ever done. And then she crosses the religious boundary. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? And we're told in this that the Samaritan village caught the same vision that she did. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Because she had captured a vision of the good life. Because she was transformed and she invited other people into that new vision of the kingdom, that new place to find fulfillment, other people believed in her because of it. I want to tell you um, a quick story. Uh, when I was in Richland Center, Wisconsin, I was pastoring a small church there. And uh, we were really involved in the jail. There's a county jail in our community. And so I would go in every week and do Bible studies and some of these things. And we had a deacon that would go in midweek and do Bible studies. And there was this one gentleman um, that was kind of in and out of jail his whole life. And I'm, I'm not going to tell you his real name, but we'll just call him William. Um, so William was in and out of jail. He grew up in Richland Center, Wisconsin. All of his folks were from there. His grandparents grew up there. They were hometown people, and that community was even smaller than this one. There was only 5,000 people there. So it was a very small community, and you know everybody knows everybody there. And so everybody knew William. Everybody knew about his problems. He was an alcoholic, and he was the guy that would end up in Culver's parking lots I told you about last week. He was that guy. So he would just go from one binge drink to the next binge drink, couldn't hold down a job, couldn't do anything right. He wound up in jail again and again and again. He would get out on probation, 
then he would go drinking, he would get in a fight, and then he would be right back in jail again. And so I saw him a couple times while he was in there. He'd be in there for a couple months. He would get out for six weeks or so. Then I would see him back inevitably. And at first, he seemed to be doing really well. He would be reading his Bible. He would have all the right answers during our Bible study. It would seem like he was really engaged with what was going on. And then he would talk about how well he was doing. And then he would get out, and I would see him in jail again. And so eventually, I just stopped buying his act. You know what I mean? And I, eventually, I just said, William... I don't want you to come back to this Bible study unless you're serious. I don't care that you have all the right answers. I don't care that you've read ahead and that you know what's going on. I don't care about that. I want you to come back when you've actually decided to change your mind. And so he showed up the next week. And at that point, I decided that we were no longer do so much Bible study. We still did a little bit. But what we started to do was focus on prayer. And specifically, we would focus on praying to God for the good of people that had wronged them. So we would pray for the guards that were mistreating these inmates. We would pray for the people on the outside that had lied to them and stabbed them in the back and mistreated them on the outside. We began praying for these people that had wronged them and praying for their good. And after we started doing that, I noticed that William actually really started to want and desire for the good good things for those who had wronged him. And I noticed that something actually changed in William, that he really wanted something different. And so, of course, he was clean because he was in jail, and they started an AA group right there in the cell block, and pretty soon he began to evangelize to his cellmates, and there were eight people in their block, and all the seven others all came to Christ through William. They all came to believe in Jesus, and in fact, they became so well-behaved that the guards started to uh, enjoy their time with them. The guards wanted to be in that cell block and interact with those men because they weren't rude, they weren't mean, that something actually changed in that cell block. And then the inmates in that cell block asked if they could be split up and go into the other cell block so they could evangelize and pray with and talk to the other inmates, and they did, and a whole other cell block came to Christ because of these guys. And it was all because of William and his desire for something different. He no longer wanted alcohol. He no longer wanted booze. He no longer desired drink. He now desired the kingdom of God. And last that I heard of him, um, we, were cor- we corresponded through letters quite a bit while I was there. And he was in a uh, state penitentiary in Milwaukee last time I heard, and he had started to do the same thing there. He started six or seven AA groups and a couple of NA groups there, some anonymous groups. And he started to evangelize and work with one of the chaplains at that prison to spread the gospel to the other inmates. This man was transformed by Jesus. And last I heard from him, we've lost contact now, but last I heard from him, he wanted to move back to Richland Center because he wanted to bring health and healing in Jesus' name to Richland Center, his own hometown. The place that he, everybody knew about him, everybody knew what he'd done, everybody knew his history, everybody knew his family. He wanted to make amends, he wanted to make it right, And he wanted to help others become healthy in his own hometown. William is the Samaritan woman. He was looking for love in all the wrong places. He was seeking after something that wasn't right. And then when he caught the vision of the kingdom of God, 
when he realized the good life was actually knowing Jesus and following him and having health and healing from him and sharing that love and sharing that gospel, then he was transformed and he invited others into that transformation. And this is what happened in that cell block. Many believed because of the testimony of William. The truth of this scripture is this. We all want something. We all want fulfillment. We look for it in many, many places. But only Jesus and his kingdom can satisfy. Only longing for the kingdom of God and loving the king can bring us the fulfillment that we're looking for. We may be looking for love in all the wrong places, but we can look for it in the right place. We can receive this healing.